My name is Scott Raines. I'm one of the pastors here, joined by Pastor Ashley and Eli and my boss, Dr. Bill Withers. And we are in a message series called Jesus Didn't Say That. And today we're, we're looking at a, a phrase, an idea that a lot of people, when they think of faith, they think this is kind of what it, what it means. Life is going to be problem-free. Life's going to be trouble-free. I remember when I would go to church camp when I was in middle school. That was sort of my immature understanding. Of if, I, if I follow Jesus, if I put my faith in Jesus, I probably won't have acne. I probably won't have cavities. Life will just be, you know, cream cheese. And the older you get, the more mature you get. I think that's another line from Spaceballs, maybe. Anyway, um, the um, the older and more mature you get, which I obviously have not arrived there yet, you, you realize, no, life actually is pretty full of troubles and trials and hardships. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. I think sometimes when we're in the middle of those troubles, we believe that is true. And one of the things that I love about gathering together for worship, you look around this room and, and the people in this room may not know the troubles that you are currently facing and going through. But we all have troubles. We all have things in our life that we wonder, does God know? Does God care? Is God going to do anything about this trouble that I find myself in the middle of? We, we want to be a church where you are free to ask the big questions about life and faith that you have, because we all have these questions. Now, whether it's in student ministry or Alpha, which is a great place to ask questions, sometimes even on the weekends, we'll do pastors open forums where you'll just write down questions, put them in a basket, and we'll try to answer your questions on the fly. When we do things like that, one of the categories of questions we always get is kind of this category, suffering, hardship, trial, or you could kind of summarize it in the question, why do bad things happen to good people? And so I thought that would be a good question for Ashley, since she's now been an ordained pastor for a month. She should have all of these answers. Welcome to Hope, Ashley. Yeah. Why do bad things happen to good people? Oh, I will do my best. We uh, Before I was on staff as a pastor, I was here uh, with student ministry. And this is always, always, always a question that our students ask. And uh, why do bad things happen to good people? <clears throat> why do natural disasters happen? Why are there terrorist attacks in the world? Wouldn't God step in to stop those things? And so this is just a big, it's a big question. And um, part of the answer, and I'll start off with, with the not so fun answer, is that uh, whenever somebody asks me why, why did God do that? Or why didn't God prevent something from happening? <clears throat> part of that answer is uh, we don't get to know why. We can't be God. And that is kind of an unsatisfying, uh, I don't like that answer, uh, but there's better news and, and we'll get there. Uh, but whenever you're asking why, I just um, just remind yourself that there are things in this world we don't get to know. This is not heaven. And believe it or not, this world isn't perfect. I don't know if you knew that recently. This, this world isn't perfect. Um, and so we live in a fallen, broken, sin-filled world. And that's why these things happen uh, because God sees them. He knows that they're happening, uh, but we don't live in a perfect world yet. Uh, God is omnipotent is a fancy word. It means he is all powerful. God is omniscient, also a fancy word. It just means he's all knowing. So this all knowing, all powerful God, does he know that bad things are going to happen? Yes. Could he prevent bad things from happening? Yes. But if God were to step in every single time something bad happened in your life or in the world around us, uh, we would just be kind of like robots. 
if he was pulling all the strings behind the scenes, um, this thing won't happen, this thing will happen, this thing won't happen, this thing will happen. We no longer get choices. We no longer get to grow from our trials. And our trials actually can push us toward Jesus. At any given time, we have the option to follow him, to lean into him and to say, God, I cannot do this on my own. I need something bigger. I need a bigger hope than this world provides. And so in the face of trials, in the face of things that do not make sense to us, and it's okay that they don't make sense, we get to lean into a God who does make sense. I like that you said you don't particularly like this part of it. Yeah. Because I think we would all say we don't like it. I wonder how many of us, though, at the same time, when we look back over the course of our life and where, where are those times, what are those seasons in my life when my faith has grown and maybe grown the most, I wonder how many of us would look back on times of trouble, Absolutely. times of hardship, when I felt out of control and all I could do was cry out and ask God to somehow help. Oh, for sure. When you you know there's something bigger that you need is is that, that place where Thank goodness we have a God that we can hope in. And this is a God who knows our troubles. He knows our trials. Uh, I often dismiss Jesus's humanity in favor of, well, Jesus was God, so he can't really relate. But Jesus was also 100% human. And throughout the New Testament, we read of the trials that Jesus faced. Right as he starts his ministry, we read uh, that Jesus is tempted by the devil. If you've ever been tempted, Jesus knows what that feels like. Shortly after that, Jesus goes to his hometown to preach in his hometown, and they run him out of town. He's abandoned. You should probably, you know, highlight that one in your Bible, <laughs> Ashley, who grew up here in this church. And luckily, Ankeny's a little nicer. Good, that's great. Some days, no. <laughs> Let me know if it changes. Oh, I love it. So, if you've ever felt abandoned or not welcomed, uh, Jesus knows that pain. Jesus was sad, and and he felt the the sting of death when one of his friends died, and he cried over that. He had emotion. And he understands that pain. He felt lonely and abandoned and he knew death. Death is one of those big things in this world that um, when good people die or my grandpa was taken from lung cancer many, many years ago and way too soon, in my opinion, I don't get to know why. And death is so hard. Death is so hard. And Jesus knows that pain. Jesus knows that sting. And this world isn't perfect, but someday everything will be made perfect again. And so as we walk through trials on this earth, we can absolutely be assured that Jesus knows what you're going through. He has not abandoned you. He does not leave you in the trials. He is walking with you and he wants you to turn to him and to lean on him. He loves you so much that he wants you to walk through it with him and not by himself. So what I don't want you to hear is that your trials don't matter. That they're too small or too big or God is worried about other stuff. That is not at all what I'm saying. Your trials absolutely matter. Big, little, anything in between, however it feels in your life, he cares. And what I do want you to hear clearly is that he wants to walk through them with you. He has not abandoned you, nor will he ever abandon you. In the letter that James writes to a new church, um, the second verse of his letter, first he introduces himself, which is very normal for a New Testament letter. The second verse says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Consider it pure joy. How are you doing considering your trials right now pure joy? 
This was a reality check for myself too, because I'm a very not, optimistic. Not great. Yeah, I know. Me neither. Me neither. And um, last service, you mentioned the difference between joy and happiness, and I think that's good to touch on here too. Is happiness is uh, it can depend on external circumstances. Joy is something that the Lord gives us, and it comes from our hearts because of Him. So we're not saying you need to be happy in these circumstances. Uh, this is pointing us to a much deeper, much greater internal joy that only God can offer. And if I'm being honest, it's, it's been hard for me to find pure joy in, in the circumstances of you know the last however many months. And so I just, I urge you, lean into Jesus. I don't have a good explanation for why bad things happen, but I know that it will help to grow our faith, that the testing of our faith produces perseverance. And Jesus, from his own words in the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus, I mean, he's not abandoning us and all things will be restored someday. So while we don't have all the answers... Things will look better one day. And in the meantime, he has not left us and he understands what we're going through. Thanks, Ashley. It's so good. And and so just a reminder, we're talking about things Jesus did not say. What Jesus actually does say, you will have trouble. It's a promise. Thank you, Jesus, for your promises, right? It's a promise for us. You will have trouble. That was part of our Bible reading. And what I like to do when when I see what the Bible reading is for the weekend is kind of what is happening leading up to this. And this is all taking part that last day, that last night, uh, the last 24 hours before Jesus is crucified. So it's John chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. It's all taking place on the same day. Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble at the end of John 16. At the beginning of John 14, he says to his disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled. So you're going to have trouble, but don't be troubled. And there's something about that that is confusing to me or or hard for me. And so I want to ask Eli, how do we do that? In in a world where we're filled with uh, with trouble, how do we not be troubled? Yeah, and it's something... You know, we look to Scripture to find these these pieces of advice, honestly, and uh, and Jesus offers in Scripture these really nice sounding statements, like John fourteen one, do not let your hearts be troubled, and it, you know that's the type of verse that looks great on a coffee mug or on a on a t shirt at the Christian bookstore, but sometimes it can feel a little bit hollow, like two chapters later, but you're going to have trouble. And how do we reconcile these these interesting paradoxes and these sometimes these verses that we just pull out of context thinking that that's all of what Jesus offers is just don't worry about it. You know, don't let your heart be troubled. Uh, It reminds me of of, uh, this comic strip by Charles Schultz, this peanut strip. I'm a big fan of of, uh, peanuts. And Charles Schultz was actually a Christian. He used this comic strip to talk about the church as he saw it and how to uh, explain Christianity to people through this cartoon. And he was looking at the church in his day and, and saw something that looked like this where you know charlie brown and linus they see snoopy shivering in the cold and they say boy he looks cold doesn't he we should go and comfort him and so they walk up to snoopy and they say like you know like good christians would be of good cheer snoopy 
Yes, be of good cheer. And then they walk away, leaving him confused and shivering in the cold. And that's kind of sometimes how these Christian sentiments, when we're offering comfort the best that we know how in difficult seasons, don't let your hearts be troubled. It can still feel like you're you know, shivering in the cold without a whole lot to keep you warm. Uh, thankfully, that's not our church. Um, actually, just yesterday, I got to uh, deliver all of the winter clothes that you donated over the past month to Ankeny students, over 500 articles of winter clothing that you all donated donated to Ankeny students. I got to deliver uh, just yesterday, and so those are going to be distributed because that is the church, you know, that we do believe while, while a lot of the troubles that we experience in this life are, are man-made and that, that uh, you know, we, we, we wrestle with these things um, and that, that God does not uh, have a, a habit, I guess, of intervening, but we do believe in a God of miracles, a God who answers prayers, and a church that is also supposed to be a part of answering people's prayers and being a part of a solution in life. So when, when I think about how to overcome difficulties and, and trials in life and the things that I'm going through. For me, I really, just the type of person I am, I want to find concrete examples of how people have actually dealt with problems. You know, what are some case studies? I think going through difficulties in life, it's really hard to be theoretical about it. You know, I have a philosophy for how to handle trouble, but what actually happens when something bad happens? How does your philosophy hold up then? And thankfully, the Bible isn't just full of nice sounding statements that look good on t-shirts. It's actually filled with concrete examples of how faithful women and men have actually overcome trials in their lives. And uh, Pastor Ashley mentioned Jesus is a prime example of somebody who knew absolutely everything of what it is to live this life on this earth. It's one of the things that makes Jesus so trustworthy for me. I, I want to follow Jesus because as God, he didn't just sit off on the sidelines and tell us how we should live. He actually lived it. You know, uh, in my quiet time lately, the last few months, uh, the times when I read Bible, read the Bible and pray, I've been in the book of Hebrews a lot. So we're going to uh, hit some highlights from the book of Hebrews. If you're looking to kind of start Bible reading or you're just stuck right now, maybe check out Hebrews. A lot of great messages for how to deal with difficult times. And this is talking about Jesus in, in Hebrews 4.15. This high priest of ours, Jesus, understands our weaknesses. For he faced all of the same testings we do, and yet he did not sin. Like Ashley said, Jesus knows what you're going through. He lived it. He experienced it. He overcame it, too, as a man. And that's something that we can look to and follow. Jesus is concrete examples, but there are others in Scripture. Uh, God actually inspired the Apostle Paul to write most of the New Testament that we have in the Bible in the form of letters. And Paul, as a convert to Christianity later in his life, uh, encountered the, the living Christ on the road to Damascus, and he surrendered his life to Jesus. And it was one generation after Jesus, and so Paul knew uh, Peter and James and John and, and Jesus' disciples. And because of the great commission that Jesus gave the church to go into the, all the world and make disciples of all the nations— Paul began traveling around as a missionary to different Greek-speaking peoples around the Mediterranean region, planting churches and raising up disciples and really starting the Christian movement outside of Jerusalem. But because he was doing this, taking the Great Commission seriously, he encountered a lot of trials, a lot of difficulties along the way. You know, the, the commission of Jesus confronts a lot of the earthly systems and, 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 and status quo that we have in place. You know, the, the call of Jesus Christ to surrender your life to him as Messiah was confrontational to the Jewish religion. That, that Jesus said, I have, over, I have fulfilled the laws and the prophets. And that in a relationship with Jesus Christ, that that is all you need to be saved. 
to put your faith and hope in the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross to cleanse you from all of your sins. That's all you need. And that was a direct confrontation to the status quo of the Jewish religion at that time. But it was also in confrontation to the Roman government who was in control of the region at the time. You know, the Roman government that said Caesar is Lord. God's divine representative on earth is Caesar. And here comes Paul and all of these disciples saying, no, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the only place where you can find your salvation. Jesus is the only person to whom you can give your allegiance. And so Paul went through a great deal of problems and difficulties because of what he was preaching. He was persecuted for his faith. And in 2 Corinthians, he actually writes down just a list of the things that he went through in his life, the things that he chose to go through. It says in, in 2 Corinthians 11, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, from bandits, from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in the country, at sea, in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. I have been cold and naked. And Paul offers this list. I don't think to... to, to, to bum anybody out, you know, but he's just saying that the life of, of faith is, as we're describing it, and the things that Jesus did not say, it doesn't mean that having a relationship with Jesus means that all your problems are just solved. And actually, what Jesus said is true, that all of your problems uh, are solved eternally, but in this life, you will actually have more trouble specifically because of your relationship when, with Jesus. When I hear that list, it, it doesn't bum me out. It makes me think, phew, you know, my life is easy. And, and, and I know Ashley said, like, my problems matter. My troubles matter. There's a real temptation for me when I look at a list like that to think I, I really shouldn't be troubled by the tiny little things that I'm going through. And yet I have this reality, whatever the tiny little things that I'm going through, they feel massive. They feel like I'm completely under attack by the Roman Empire or whoever it might be. And, and so like, what do, what do I do when I'm feeling that kind of, I don't know, violence against me in a spiritual sense. Yeah, I think uh, as followers of Jesus, we're really no different in a lot of ways where we, we play this comparison game with other people's lives. You know, we think that I'm not as good of a Christian because I haven't been beaten for my faith. And that's not how God sees us. We're told in the Bible that God's love is perfect, complete, meaning that God doesn't have more love for other people who go through harder things and less love for you if the difficulties that you face in your life don't seem, at least on the outside, to be as massive as somebody else's difficulties. That's not how God operates. God has perfect and complete love for you as you are, and whatever you're going through, that's a priority to him. He cares about the things that are on your heart, and he wants you to cast those cares on him because the Bible says he cares for you completely and perfectly. He's not comparing your faith to somebody else's faith. He's looking for that faith. And, and when Paul says, these are the things that I've gone through, then I want to say again, not a philosophy for how did you overcome these things, but what did you practically do, Paul, to actually protect yourself, to guard yourself against these, these trials, these massive problems in your life? Because I think I could apply that to myself. And that's why on the screen, one of the things that, again, I've been fixating on the last couple of months has been this, this illustration that Paul offers in Ephesians about the armor of God. 
putting on the armor of God. And I, I almost visualize this as something that was maybe part of Paul's daily routine as he was getting physically dressed for the day, spiritually, mentally, emotionally. He was guarding himself internally with God's armor. And then he goes on in Ephesians chapter six to actually list off what are the pieces of the armor of God that we can equip ourselves with that will provide a great deal of protection, but also defense against these troubles that we face. And so here are some of the things that Paul lists in Ephesians 6, 14. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And even just those first couple of things, I think, you know, the the armor of God would be something that would be a a fitting sermon series in its own right to take each one of these things and, and talk about what does it actually mean to have the truth of God fitted around your waist and the breastplate of his righteousness. And that's the thing I want to call out in the Bible. It doesn't say our righteousness. You know, don't try to arm yourselves with your righteousness. The Bible says that our righteousness is filthy rags compared to Jesus's righteousness. That in the morning when I want to get, you know, fitted with the armor of God, I'm not going to look to myself to save me. You know, I'm weak. I need God's righteousness to clothe me, to protect me. I want to put on Jesus every day so that he is the thing that's actually guarding my heart and my mind, that his truth, the truth of Jesus Christ is the most important truth to me in my life. You know, and and the peace that comes from being ready with his gospel. And then then it says... uh, In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And this has really been one for me in a couple, the last couple of weeks that I've focused on. Like, what is it, what is it about faith that protects me? That's what it's saying here. What is it about faith that I can actually use as a shield? And again, it says to protect you from the the fiery arrows of the evil one. You know, again, all all the problems that we face in this life, yes, some of them are created by, you know, just our conflict with others and and the sin that we have that that does damage to, to individual human beings and the free will that God offers people in the natural world. But some of the problems we face, the Bible is very clear and honest that they are part of us being caught in the crossfire between a cosmic battle of good and evil, that there is this spiritual battle happening around us all the time. And Satan does want to disrupt your faith. He is actively looking to upend the trust that you have in Jesus Christ. And I think it's interesting that it calls them flaming arrows of the evil one. You know, not like massive bombs that get dropped on our life, but just little things that keep, you know, chipping away at our defenses every single day, little annoyances, little sins, little difficulties. You know, some of us do face these massive shipwrecks in our lives, but those I think are the actual things like Ashley said that actually bring us to our knees and say, God, I need you. But every day when, you know, someone just has a nasty comment about you, I don't really go to God with that. I just let it chip away at me. You know, those are the things that that God wants us to use our faith to protect. And it says in Hebrews, again, going through Hebrews, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That, that, That kind of faith that says, I don't see what's on the other side of this difficulty yet. I can't, I don't have a vision for how this pandemic is going to end. I'm not smart enough, but my faith tells me that God is in it. God has some kind of plan that he is working even now in the midst of whatever difficulty you are facing, whether it's massive or one of those, you know, flaming little arrows, God is in that thing and my faith can actually protect me. But there's something contextual about this too that I think is interesting from Paul's time. You know, the way that armies would use their shields back in the the Roman period that they had actually figured out, I I don't have a shield. 
in my life. I, it's not a piece of technology that I use these days. So I don't quite understand what Paul might have been saying. But back then, they'd actually figured out a way to use shields that had a lot more effect. Let's take a look. are days I have when things are, are very challenging and my one shield just isn't enough. My faith on its own is not strong enough to repel whatever attacks are coming my way. And the interesting thing about how the Romans and these were Vikings and different cultures around that time figured out how to use shields, not for yourself, but for everybody. That when we lock our shields, when we lock our faith together as a community, that's far more effective than you just standing on your own. So on those days, when I find that my faith just isn't enough, I know that Pastor Scott has his shield up next to me, and Pastor Ashley has her shield up next to me, and, pa and Dr. Bill has his shield up next to me, and all of us together, when our faith is combined together, again, from Hebrews, uh, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, run the race that God has set before us. You know, our faith combined, the church that is what Paul is writing about, that shield of faith. It isn't just one person against the world. And you saw the contrast as those individual warriors with their one shield was just bouncing off of the wall. But I know that my faith on days when it's just not enough is surrounded by all of us together in the church, guarding against the, these attacks and these difficulties. And that's what it means to be a part of the community of God together. Absolutely. Thank, thanks, Eli. And that gets us to Bill. Uh, Bill, who's been here at Hope for a couple of years, but he did not come to Hope from another church. This might be the first time some of you are uh, getting to meet Bill. So just tell us a little bit. Of how how'd you end up here at Hope, Bill? Um, I was at Warburg College for 20 years. So I did a lot of higher education training and development. Before that, I was in business all during that time, getting to work with uh, large companies, nonprofit organizations, and some churches. During that time, Pastor Mike Householder asked if I'd come down and look at a couple projects they're working on. And at the end of that, um, we just liked the relationship and I was really excited about everything that was going on at Hope. And he said, how would you and your wife, Linda, like to just throw it all in the car and you finish your career down here? And I, had he said, and by the way, there will be a pandemic, uh, we might have thought about it a little longer, but we didn't. We said yes. Yeah, so uh, there is a pandemic. And in the last six or seven months, church has changed quite a bit. It looks a, a, a lot different. And I think some people might be sort of really nervous about that, maybe even uh, losing hope around what, what's the future of the church. Uh, the question I want to start with for you is, is the church in trouble? Let me reframe the question. Is it possible that the bride of Christ would be allowed to go through trouble? Now think about that a second. So the answer is yes and no. The church at large in the United States of America is struggling. 
Um, Lutheran Church of Hope and Hope Ankeny, not so much. Now, how are they doing that? Well, we'll get to that. Some of it is, is digital. Some of it is uh, investing in a lot of very different ministries. So hope does very well, Pastor Scott, but there is a really interesting thing happening in churches all across the country and even here in other parts of Ankeny, and I want to show you what that looks like. There's a number of organizations that follow churches and how they're doing and whether they're healthy or not in the United States. Now, I promise you're seeing some numbers. No polls today, no map about elections. I promise you. Don't send me any mail. No, I'm not sending Eli any mail. I just want the best way to figure out if there's trouble at church is to look at the last 20 years. So real quickly, three buckets, Christian and I practice my faith, Christian don't practice my faith anymore, but I still believe I'm just not practicing or non-Christian. One of the organizations that measures this is a group called the Barna Group. Take a look at the last 20 years on the screen. Take a look at the end. The largest group are those that say, I do believe in Jesus. I do know there's a church down the street, but I'm not going. I'm not going. Fastest growing group, don't believe at all. So I'm a, Linda and I are big believers in world mission, but let me, let me have you hear this clearly. There is a mission field just down the road of people who have either fallen away or are no longer practicing their faith. So yeah, there are troubles out there. Now, let me do this, because you could say, you could look at me today and say, well, Bill, my parents and my grandparents, certainly they still go to church. I just, my habits and things have changed a little bit, but I know my family still goes. Maybe not so much. Let's break it out by demographic. Upper left, four generations, Gen Y millennials, Gen X, boomers, and our senior generation. Over the last 10 years, they too, have made choices not to engage in the regular practice of their faith. So there is trouble in the church in the United States of America. And it's fascinating to watch it over time. I want you to pay careful attention to Gen Y millennials, our youngest generation up until recently, and only about one in four would regularly connect to a church. So this raises really interesting questions for people who are our leaders in the church. And uh, for us at Hope, we, we've been looking at these trends and asking questions for year after year after year. Uh, Bill is a big baseball fan. He he likes the Cardinals and, you know, we forgive him for that. We love him That's anyway. Really yeah. I hear a groan of cup. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a movie uh, called Moneyball based on a book called Moneyball that's been looking at some trends happening in baseball over the last 20 years or so. And, and a big part of what's going on there is uh, analytics and how do we build teams to win uh, if we have a small budget. And the Oakland A's are kind of the case study for this. And so in, in this movie, um, Billy Bean, played by Brad Pitt, is the general manager uh, for the Oakland A's. And all of his star players are leaving and taking big contracts to go in and play for the Yankees or other you know, big market teams. He's trying to compete with a $40 million payroll against teams with over a $100 million payroll. How do we do that? What kinds of questions should we be asking? How do we build the team? Take a look. There is an epidemic failure within the game to understand what is really happening. And this leads people who run Major League Baseball teams to misjudge their players and mismanage their teams. 
I apologize. Go on. Okay. People who run ball clubs, they think in terms of buying players. Your goal shouldn't be to buy players. Your goal should be to buy wins. And in order to buy wins, you need to buy runs. You're trying to replace Johnny Damon. The Boston Red Sox see Johnny Damon and they see a star who's worth $7.5 million a year. When I see Johnny Damon, what I see is, is an imperfect understanding of where runs come from. The guy's got a great glove. He's a decent leadoff hitter. He can steal bases, but is he worth the $7.5 million a year that the Boston Red Sox are paying him? No. No. Baseball thinking is medieval. They are asking all the wrong questions. And if I say it to anybody, I'm, I'm ostracized. I'm, I'm, I'm a leper. So that's why I'm, I'm cagey about this with you. That's why I, I respect you, Mr. Bean. And if you want full disclosure, I think it's a good thing that you got Damon off of your payroll. I think it opens up all kinds of interesting possibilities. Your best player is leaving, and I think it's a good thing. And so they start approaching things from a, a very different kind of place, a, a different way of thinking about things, a way that is no longer medieval. <laughs> I think in, in the church, you know, Lutheran churches started during the Reformation. Uh, we were supposed to be always reforming. And I think a lot of times we get stuck in ways of thinking that are medieval or at least uh, way back to the Reformation in terms of how to be the church. What are the right questions? What are the best questions for us to be asking as we move forward? Well, the question, in the, what are the possibilities, right? So one would think that we should be uh, investing a little bit more in young people. And uh, you saw the last thing that the Gen Y millennials just aren't responding right now. So let's look at the next generation. And that generation is called Gen Z. I won't get into the details on all this other than to say, born mid-90s, they're probably age 5 to 25. So if the future of the church are these young people that are now getting out of college and university, getting their first job, and starting their families, that should be, that should be enough to turn the ship, don't you think? Up on the screen, and if we circle the last three indicators... That equals 57%. I like to round. Let's call it 60% of the next generation is what we call none or done. They have no church affiliation whatsoever, or they started something and quit. So the future of the church, and by the way, Scott, all of this was done and released the month the pandemic started. So these are 20-year trends, and we can't rely on, a, uh, at least the greater church can't rely on a next gen. And by the way, there's a pandemic. So you have to ask the question, so why do people fall away from church? Why might there be trouble in the church? And sometimes we have to hold a mirror up to ourselves. Let's take a look at the top five things that make young people turn away from church. Number one, no big surprise. I did that in 1978. I went to the university in Minnesota, and the first thing I did, because I grew up in a very strict, organized church, I mean, I was president of my youth group, I sang in the choir, blah, blah, blah. First thing I did when I got to the university, stop going, because mom and dad weren't encouraging me to go, so I didn't have to go. Some colleges and universities don't have a very good or vibrant uh, ministry for kids. It's, it's just not interesting. The other three here are what's more intriguing to me. Let's hold up a mirror. 
Young people will go to a church and they find it to be kind of righteous and pious and hypocritical and judgmental. That couldn't be the church, could it, Scott? Well, the specifics are important. It's the church members. It's not the church leaders. Staff, so, yes. Yeah. Staff is fine. Right. right. Be clear on that. Yeah. Someone is a little sensitive this morning. Well, but I think I think you're the way that you're describing it, holding up a mirror is absolutely our approach. Like at no point are we saying, like, this is their fault. That generate no, right. it's, it's us. What are we doing wrong as the church? What are the possibilities? And how do we reframe the question? Second one. Young people will walk into a church, and the first thing they're gonna do is say, Is there anyone else here like me? Is there anyone, and could I get connected to a group, a community, small group, life group? Are there pastors and staff that are truly interested in me? Third thing, and this is a, a lose-lose proposition. Young, the younger generations, if they go to church, they either want to hear uh, Eli or Pastor Ashley or Pastor Scott speak more about cultural, political issues or not talk about it at all and stay away from it. It's one of the most polarizing things in our country today, and it is in the church. That's why Pastor Mike will be saying on tape, we're not right wing, we're not left wing, we want the whole bird. So we, we stay out of those ditches. The last one is self-explanatory. Life, work, cultural things change. So what is Hope doing and why would it be different? You said, Bill, early, Maybe Hope isn't struggling. In fact, Pastor Ashley gave a tour of this church at the last service to three different families, all of with children. This is why. This is why Hope does well. This is why you can find Hope in Hope and why I get so jacked up to be here and work with these people. We double down on the next two generations. And that is the way this church is probably going to do well. And I know there's so much that's not great about social media. I, I would just encourage you, follow all of these things on social media, even if you're not in that uh, demographic. Because part of what you'll see is pictures of what in the world does our parking lot look like on a Wednesday night in the middle of a pandemic. Our power life and ignition numbers haven't really been impacted at all from last year to this year. Kids are coming. Kids want to be connected. Kids want to be uh, hearing some kind of a, a hope and a, a, you know getting grounded in a God who's been around through all kinds of pandemics over, over the centuries. If you look at what's going on, uh, Bill talked about some college College campuses don't have good ministries for the college kids. We've started uh, Kairos at uh, Drake now and Iowa State and Iowa City. And you look at the numbers of kids, students who are coming out for that. It is unbelievable. So we are unapologetically competing for the hearts of our young people. That's why if, when you walk out, you'll, you'll see a display for uh, Building to a Hope Beyond, our phase two project that uh, you gave over $5 million for us to be able to add a unashamedly, we're calling it a youth and family wing. We want more space and better space to be able to do ministry for this generation. I mean, I remember lines from Spaceballs that I watched when I was 15, 16 years old. Uh, if we, I also remember Bible verses that I learned when I was 15, 16 years old. And that's what we're hoping will be able to happen uh, for the young people who are a part of this church. Anything else the three of you would want to add before we... Close. Yeah, take a look at that display. There's there's literature, and so if you're if you haven't been around Hope Ankeny in the last couple of years, you may not know like what was this building campaign all about. Um, we plan to break ground in the spring, but there's pieces of literature at that TV that you can take and just be more informed about what we're doing and why we're doing it, and some of the numbers that we looked at that help us make that decision. 
So will you praise God with me for Ashley and Eli and Bill and everything that they offer? Let's stand together. And as the worship team comes out to lead us in the closing song, would you pray with me, please? So, Lord, uh, you promise we'll have tough times, and we are in the midst of that right now. As Eli said, many people may not have been on a literal shipwreck in their lives, but for a lot of people, they've experienced very personal shipwrecks, whether it's relational or financial or in terms of health. So, God, we pause and we cry out to you in the middle of the trouble, whatever trouble it is that we're going through, whatever flaming arrows we're trying to dodge. And we ask, Lord, that you would not only protect us, uh, but that you would give us a hope and you would uh, raise us up to a whole new kind of life through the power of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.